Hello, and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we'll talk with Craig Coben, who was until recently Bank of America's global head of equity capital markets, and for many years, the bank's head of EMEA equity capital markets, based in London. Craig has worked with the ECM transactions for almost 30 years, helping companies execute their IPOs, follow-on capital raises, and rights issues, in Europe and globally. Having a well-functioning IPO market allowing companies to raise capital is important to support economic growth. Yet we've recently seen a slowdown in IPO volumes, with the dons that do make it to market performing poorly. With Craig, we take a step back to understand the real challenges facing European IPOs lately, and why there's been so little innovation to the IPO product over the last decades. Before we start, we'd like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording have no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants on this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Craig, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You started as a lawyer, but then you went on to a career within equity capital markets at uh, two different investment banks. Can you tell us a bit about what uh, attracted you to this field? So I was a lawyer for three years at Sullivan Cromwell, two years in New York, and one year in London. And I was working in securities transactions. And um, being a lawyer is pretty hard work. The deals are always very interesting, but when you're the one who has to stay late to turn the documentation some of the charm uh, wears off over time. So when I had the opportunity to move, I definitely took it. And uh, Deutsche Bank came knocking on my door. And uh, I really liked the people. I thought it was a, a growing platform. And at the time, in the late 1990s, it was a really interesting period for European equity capital markets. You were in the midst of a privatization program across the continent, modeled in part on the UK privatizations of the late 1980s. And so it was a really exciting time to join an investment bank in the equity capital markets team in Europe. And for the benefit of our listeners, can you just explain what an equity capital markets banker actually does? Equity capital markets bankers are effectively sitting between the corporate finance arms of the investment banks and the sales force. So what we try to do is we try to originate, execute, and syndicate IPOs, follow-on share offerings, uh, convertible bond offerings, exchangeable bond offerings, and uh, and even corporate equity derivatives transactions. So the mainstream product, the glamour product, is, of course, the IPOs. And we're the people left to get the IPOs done who are sitting effectively between the investment bankers and the corporate finance teams and the distribution platforms of the sales force. So I guess you have a pretty close handle on the pulse of the investment world then. We have to understand both what the companies are thinking, what issuers are thinking, and their shareholders, as well as what investors are thinking, and try to make the deal happen. So we do wear multiple hats, and we're intermediaries, but in the best sense of the word. 
Do you have some examples of some of the most notable transactions you worked on during your career? Yeah, I'll tell you some of the the sexier ones that I worked on because I think those are always the most interesting ones. But I worked on, for example, the IPO of Luxury Space, Montclair, Jimmy Choo, Brunello Cucinelli. I mean, I worked on all those sort of fun and exciting ones. But I also worked on a lot of very mainstream IPOs, WorldPay and Nexi in the payment space. I worked on Campari in the drink space. I worked on IANA and infrastructure space, really across almost every single industry I've had transactions, whether it's technology, retail, consumer, healthcare, you name it. I, I've worked on IPOs in those areas. And across the world as well, right? Yes. Yeah, so I ran European equity capital markets for about eight years at uh, B of A, but I worked as well in Asia. I was co-head of the Asia Global Capital Markets team. And so we had quite a few IPOs, especially out of greater China. But I've also worked on IPOs as well in the US when I was global head of equity capital markets for about four years. With the UK having left the EU, we can now see the FCA taking a serious step at reforming the UK listing regime. But then you have many companies, especially tech companies, who are also looking at the US very seriously. For example, Revolut, ARM, and I'm sure the VC funds who back them are probably pushing for US listing as well. So I wanted to go through a bit some of the arguments regarding Europe versus US, given your experience. The first would be the ecosystem. I mean, obviously there's more tech companies listed in the US, and there's basically more comparables for a tech company coming to the market. I'm just wondering if it's easier to list tech companies in the US because there's just more comparables. I think it depends a little bit because on the one hand, the U.S. has a much deeper knowledge base, broader ecosystem, both on the sell side and on the buy side for technology companies. In addition, the markets are much more liquid. You have more retail involvement. And so it ends up being a more favorable environment for technology companies to list in the U.S. On the other hand, when you're a foreign company listing in the U.S., the risk is you become an orphan stock after sort of the initial burst of interest and enthusiasm. Your operations aren't there, your IR function isn't there, management isn't there, and people see you as kind of some odd European beast sitting on NASDAQ or the NYSE. And so it's often a balance, and I think it really depends. Look, it's not very difficult for investors to run comps, even if it's on a different stock exchange. That, that's a fairly a straightforward process. So would you say that U.S. investors are typically able to look at European listings then, if they're a sector specialist? Oh, they definitely do. The question is whether they're familiar with those European listings, whether they're familiar with those companies so they can make qualitative judgments around them. And if all of the other peers are listed in the U.S. and the target investor base you know, is sitting in the U.S., then it becomes, I think, a little bit harder to IPO in Europe. But I think it has to be done on a case-by-case basis. I also think size matters. If your company is a relatively small size, and you go list in the U.S., you may find not very much interest in your name. And is there any sector where Europe is a preferred listing location? I mean, we recently saw Coty announcing that they would actually dual list in France. Do you feel like there's any sectors where Europe is actually a better listing location, even for non-European companies? It's very rare to see non-European companies list in Europe, with the exception of emerging market companies that have listed on the London Stock Exchange. You just don't see very many non-European companies listing, for example, on a continental stock exchange. You can say that Europe is fairly strong in luxury goods, certain areas of consumer, certain areas of pharma. But again, it's really difficult to say that Europe has such a competitive advantage, such a deep 
ecosystem or broad ecosystem that you would forfeit listing on your home exchange in favor of Europe. Again, the partial exception are for those companies that are listed domiciled in an emerging market where they'd want to have sort of a global or mainstream exchange. And in that case, London has still tended to be the stock market of choice. I want to come back to the question about liquidity because we often criticize Europe as being less liquid than the US. It's probably true, but why do you think this is structurally? A couple of reasons. I think first, the fragmentation of the European market. You don't have one European exchange. You've got dozens of exchanges, dozens of settlement systems. And so as a result, it's a completely fragmented market. I mean, every country seems to have its own stock exchange. And I think that probably does the market overall a disservice. Ideally, you would have one European exchange. You would have almost like a European market union or maybe just a couple, but they haven't really integrated them. I think secondly, you have a lack of retail involvement. Retail is quite important in the US. In Europe, it tends to be an afterthought, often absent. This is especially the case in the continent. And third, I just don't think you have that much money in Europe that is dedicated to equities. You just don't have that many players with substantial amounts of money who are actively involved in buying and trading European equities. And so you just see the European market losing liquidity and even these IPOs. I know we're going to talk about IPOs in a moment, but I think it's one of the great challenges for the IPO market in Europe is that after two or three sessions, the stocks start to trade on appointment. And that's a real frustration for portfolio investors who need the ability to enter and exit without moving the share price against them. And we often see this argument that you have hedge funds or liquidity providers in deals, IPOs, who it's quite well known will probably exit their shares pretty soon after the IPO, after having made money or lost money, go either way. But I've also heard it mentioned that you should have a mix of long-term investors and hedge fund investors as part of your allocation to ensure you get more liquidity in the shares. What do you think about this argument? Is this really the case? Look, I think you go to a steakhouse and you want a steak, but you also want some sizzle on that steak, right? Just to make it taste better. And I think it's the same in IPOs. You do need to have aftermarket liquidity and you do need to have an optimal mix of long-term, long-only investors, as well as liquidity-providing hedge funds. I think the challenge you have right now is that you don't have enough substantial long-only investors in Europe. And so as a result, there is an over-reliance on liquidity providers. Now, those liquidity providers are helpful for getting deals done, but they don't want to be the only ones in the book either. And they expect there to be a solid core, if you will, of long-only investors. But one of the changes that has happened in Europe over the last 15, 20 years is you've had a hollowing out of the long-only community with very few substantial long-only players left. And is that a hollowing out because people are less active in IPOs, the same asset managers, or is it a result of the concentration and also passivization of the asset management community? Look, I think the active long-only managers have lost assets. Maybe it's passivization, maybe it's poor performance, maybe it's the changes to the pension regulations in different countries. But whatever the case is, right now, if you want to complete a substantial IPO in Europe, You need to get one of the big mutual fund complexes, of which there are probably about right now two, that I would say you need to get one of those two in or else you're going to struggle to have traction on a substantial IPO. 
that wasn't the case 15, 20 years ago. You know, we used to do road shows in Edinburgh. We used to road show non-Dutch companies around the Netherlands. We used to spend time around continental Europe outside of London. We don't do that anymore. Well, equity capital market seems haven't been doing it for 10, 15 years. And it's because there isn't the money there. Everyone would love if you had a wide range of lonely investors who could put in sizable tickets. It just doesn't happen anymore. The UK club, by and large, has disappeared. Many people blame pension rules. But whatever the case is, the UK club is a shadow of its former self. Uh, much of the money has gone passive or has been outsourced. In the US, the mid-market guys, they don't find Europe all that interesting anymore because of the lack of liquidity. So it just sort of becomes a negative cycle, a vicious cycle. And how do you think, I mean, if we had some policy options, how do you think you could actually encourage more European institutional participation in IPOs? Because you do have, maybe not to the size of the US, but you have quite a lot of sizable pension funds in, in Europe, but maybe they don't participate that much because it takes up quite a lot of resources, it's quite intensive, and then maybe they were a bit disappointed about allocations in the end. How do you think you could actually engage more with those uh, institutions? I mean, you have to look at the pension regulations country by country, but by and large, the regulations discourage in one form or another substantial amount of equity allocations. There is a very clear regulatory bias in favor of fixed income. And so that's probably the first part of call. In addition, you just have very low retail participation, whether directly or indirectly via mutual funds and unit trusts. And that has to do with you know, cultural factors, tax factors. I mean, there are myriad factors. If you add to that the fact that it is still a very fragmented market. I mean, Italian investors don't invest in, say, Spanish equities, um, even though we're supposed to have moving towards capital markets union. And so you end up lacking scale in the markets which you're trying to market your shares. So it's just a very, very difficult system. You know, there are periods of time where Europe works. And those were, for example, when you have the wave of privatizations, you had one privatization after another of big companies. They were quasi-monopolistic with a little bit of restructuring. They were actually very profitable, very attractive. Then maybe you'd have a TMT boom or something like that. You'd have a, a kind of a catalyst and then people would come in. But when you don't have those catalysts, liquidity dries up, interest dries up. And then what you actually find is there isn't very much money allocated to European equities. And with these challenges, if we look at uh, what's happening in Europe right now in terms of IPOs, the activity is quite low, but we've had three IPOs in Europe year to date and all performed quite poorly, right? There were three quite different companies. You had Lotomatica, an Italian lottery company, Eurogroup Laminations, which is a leading supplier of core components of electric motors, and Jonas, which is Europe's largest web hosting company. You had strong equity markets in the beginning of the year, actually quite low volatility in the market. And for all these IPOs, the IPO books were covered in the first hour of book build. And yet, they all actually failed to deliver and underperformed quite severely. So I'm just uh, going to put the question out there. What's wrong here? What's wrong with the European IPO market? I mean, it's a great question because you can't say these three companies were dogs. You can't say these three companies were bad or that it was speculative. These are solid companies that are profit-making companies. And yet all three IPOs have performed really poorly. I think that there are problems in the way in which IPOs are executing in Europe. I think that the deals are probably too big 
for the amount of money that's available for them. I think that you know you can debate whether the valuations were ambitious or not. But I think against the backdrop of limited liquidity and relatively scarce amount of loan-only capital, I think the price concessions probably had to be greater than maybe would have been tolerable for the shareholders of those companies. And so what ends up happening is the deals kind of get jammed out. Many cases, not every case, you know, at or near the bottom of the range. And there's just no aftermarket buying interest. The coverage messages that come out early are because you have the liquidity providing hedge funds putting in sizable orders up front. But that's just to give them optionality. You know, they're helpful, but they'll be the first to tell you that they're not the long-term holders of these stocks. And they get quite skittish too, because they realize that they won't be able to get out of their positions. And from a risk management perspective, the low liquidity creates all sorts of issues for them because over time they do want to exit these positions. You know, they do probably have some sort of broader market hedge in many cases. It just becomes very difficult. So I think the way I would look at it is you have a broken market and also the way in which IPOs are executed is suboptimal. And that combination has just been fatal for the IPO market. So unless it's a no-brainer, a fantastic trophy asset like Porsche, the IPOs are going to struggle. If you take a step back on this, what do you actually think is the right measure of success? Because to us as investors, it's obviously that the share price goes up and stays high over the long term because we we want to be owners of the assets and uh, we're looking to make a return. But you could say it's it's a bit different for the company and the sellers. Maybe the seller actually wants to have the highest price and uh, the company maybe wants to have a liquid share price so they can raise capital again. What do you think is actually the the right measure of a successful IPO, if you want? It's a balance. So you do want the shares to go up in the aftermarket, not only to benefit investors, but also to give the company a platform for future capital raising, future deal making, and future success. You know, employee retention, everything sort of revolves around that share price. It's very uncomfortable when your share price is down 10, 15, 20% from IPO. It creates a lot of internal complications. No one should ever think that the IPO is the end event and that you should take every penny off the table because that is the extremely short-term thinking that will only damage the company and, and its shareholders who still have shares to dispose of in, in, in future. Liquidity is important as well. You want to create a liquid market, but that's really difficult to engineer because the market is the market and, and there's not much you can do. I guess if the shares sell off post-IPO, that actually creates lower liquidity and actually more difficulty for the private equity seller, for example, to get out of the longer term, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think sometimes sellers think, well, I'll just maximize my price at the IPO. The market will take care of itself. And then when I want to do my follow-on, it'll be the market is what the market is. And where I IPO is irrelevant to where the price will be in six months or 12 months. I think that's a very myopic view because once investors become disenchanted with a stock, it's often very difficult for it to recover. It takes a lot of work and your back is sometimes up against the wall and that starts to feed into overall business performance in many cases. So in some ways, the way IPOs are done in the U.S. is better. They'll have a smaller offering, a lower free float. They'll leave money in the table so that the stock trades well in the aftermarket, ideally. You do have disasters in the U.S. Let's not care ourselves. But ideally, the stock would trade well. And then you have a platform for doing follow on and then subsequent sell downs. That seems to me a much more preferable system than 
going out with a fairly large offering, often 25 to 40% free float, and then it's sort of a bloated offering, struggles to get done, doesn't have a good shareholder base, and really can't get, the stock just can't get going. Yeah, I mean, definitely when you see that there's not enough tension in the book, you get worried because the people have been, some people have been inflating their demand and then you actually end up with quite a sloppy aftermarket. But I've also heard the argument the other way around, which is if there's not enough free float, you actually end up with even more liquid shares. So it's actually not realistic to do a 10 to 15% free float IPO in Europe. That's a very fair argument and I've made that argument myself. You sort of have to balance it a little bit. Equity capital markets is all about finding the balance between the seller and the buyers. When it comes to free float, when you're trying to assess size, on the one hand, you have to have enough free float to create meaningful liquidity. But on the other hand, you can't have too large of a size that you lose supply-demand tension. But I think something is fundamentally wrong. My own view is, look, the market is not easy in the U.S. for the reasons we've just discussed. But you probably need to go back to first principles, which is, offering stock at a price that's going to be attractive to investors. And if that price is not acceptable to the vendors, then don't go ahead or don't list. It's better just not to go ahead. And I think that sometimes what happens is that shareholders and companies don't have realistic expectations as to what is achievable in the market. They see where other companies are trading and they think, well, they deserve that kind of multiple as well. And maybe in theory they do, but in practice, because of what we're talking about, it's not achievable or it's not sustainable. I think that's one of the problems you have in Europe. You know, in Europe, you look at the syndicate structures, you take Lotomatica, but any of these ones, where you have five global coordinators, as opposed to in the US, where you had Kenview, where you had one lead left bank. The accountability on the advisory side, you can see that in the US. You have a lead left bank, that bank, in that case it was Goldman Sachs, they were accountable for the advice they gave. And I assume they gave some pretty direct messages to Johnson & Johnson about where their deal could price. When you're one of five banks, it's very difficult to give that kind of honest advice because you have four other banks who may be telling the client, look, you know, this bank, they don't really believe in the company. We do. We think you can get a higher valuation and they're going to get a much more receptive audience. So the way IPOs are executed in Europe can also be improved because there's just a lack of accountability. I think Europe should consider moving towards a sort of lead left concept where you have somebody who's on the hook. You can have a syndicate, you can add anybody you want, throw money around, but you need to have one bank that's on the hook for the advice that they're giving and who can actually tell them this is where it's going to clear. You may not want to hear that. Maybe we shouldn't go ahead, as opposed to a lot of happy talk. And then you price at the bottom of the range in this kind of artificial level, and it just trades down, and all you're doing is stabilizing it. And it, it seems like there's almost a cultural difference, right? Both on the way that uh, banks are incentivized to give advice to their clients in terms of going ahead or not and the pricing. Is there also a difference of culture in terms of allowing investors to profit in a sense, where uh, in Europe it's maybe not so acceptable to see everybody uh, doing well on an IPO? Yeah, I mean, it's weird, you know, because the big fear from issuers in Europe is that they leave too much money on the table. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, European issuers hire independent advisors is because they don't want the banks to undersell their shares. And yet when you look statistically, you see that actually IPOs in Europe have not tended to leave a lot of money on the table over the years. It's very rare, not unprecedented, but it's very rare that you see large aftermarket pops as sometimes you do in the U.S. 
Is it cultural? I don't know if it's cultural because when it comes to capital markets, practices are shared globally and there's a lot of cross-pollination. But it is quite strange. I think part of the problem is that, you know, it's one thing when you're selling 8% of the company. It's quite another thing when you're selling 40% of the company. You suddenly become a lot more price sensitive. And, you know, in Europe until recently, you had a minimum 25% free float on many stock exchanges. And I think that could be or could have been one of the problems that we've had in Europe. I think everyone needs to rethink how they do IPOs in Europe. I think you need more accountability, you need more flexibility, and you need a better understanding that this isn't a market in which you can sort of squeeze the last dollar, euro, hunen off the table. It's also been our feedback that uh, when you see IPOs not working, you definitely have to take into account that and discount every valuation feedback you receive and understand that it actually needs to be a really good deal for to get sufficient participation, right? And also sufficient aftermarket performance, because if you're looking at uh, having performance post-IPO, the best way to do it is to have something that's still attractive once it starts trading on day one. You get more investors that flock into it and buy more in the, in the aftermarket. Yeah, there's no aftermarket buying in these deals. I and mean, that's quite apparent, the three deals you've cited. And again, these are three perfectly solid companies, right? These were not fly-by-night companies, unprofitable companies, concept companies. These were solid companies. The feedback that I'd heard on every company was management was good, business model was solid. I think that's what's so alarming about what has happened. People need to make money. When they start making money, liquidity floods in. Then the U.S. investors will re-engage. But right now, the European IPOs are a slog. First of all, we have a tremendously long sort of period of time before IPOs, right? You have pilot fishing and, uh, you know, all the early looks and they have different names for it, but various iterations of sort of early looks and everything else. And then when it comes down to it, the deal is good. You may find you don't get a proper allocation, but most deals don't work. And then you're stuck in a share that's illiquid. And when it's illiquid, even if you like the name, even if you like the valuation, for many investors, especially the hedge funds, they can't stay in it. Their risk managers say, you've got to yank your capital because from a risk management perspective, it just doesn't work with this kind of liquidity. I mean, you look at Eurogroup, you know, it traded, what, 3 million euros yesterday. Ionis traded a million euros, I think, yesterday of average daily trading volume. I mean, my local pizzeria has almost as much daily turnover as some of these stocks. And, you know, the pizza's good, but I wouldn't want to be buying and selling there. That's a very good point. I mean, the, the IPO product has not changed much over the decades. You've seen it. Now we have some small changes. The FCA is looking at its listing regime. You have a bit of a relaxation of the minimum free float rule that you talked about. But why do you think there's so little innovation? I mean, that's the case for Europe, but the US as well, right? There's, there's actually quite little change over time. Yeah. Well, Pear, there's a saying, where you stand depends on where you sit. The current setup is actually very good for the incumbents. And so there has been a lack of innovation around it. I mean, ever since you've had the separation research and investment banking, which is something I wrote about in the FT a couple of weeks ago, you know, it's very difficult to differentiate between the different distribution platforms. You tell me, Pear, if a deal comes from one bank versus another bank, does it really make much of a difference to you? In many cases, I would say probably not. And so if it's a relatively cozy setup, it's not a cartel. There's absolutely no collusion whatsoever. I can tell you winning business is brutally competitive. 
But then once you're there, once you're executing it, there is a kind of a lack of competitive tension. I'll tell you, when I was in Asia, one thing that was really interesting was how the Chinese IPOs work. I'm talking about the Hong Kong IPOs, the offshore IPOs for Chinese companies. Let's say you would be a sponsor. That's the top line. It's like global coordinator. And there'd be, let's say, 15 names. So everybody would choose five names. And the economics would not be decided. So let's say they had a 2% or 3% fee, but the distribution of those economics would not be decided until the end. And then they would see how much demand you would generate from each of those investors or how much allocable demand you would generate from each of those investors. And on that basis, the issuer would decide how much you got paid. And I can remember when I first got out to Asia, there was one IPO we were sponsored on. We got very low economics because our names just didn't come through in the book. And boy, did that focus minds in the future. We checked which investors we were putting down, what the follow-up was. We became much more focused on that. But in Europe, everything's uh, cool, right? It's kind of you put in an order and it shows up on everyone's book. Again, this is in a different way. It's a lack of accountability. Sometimes I think you have to put people's feet to the fire. So I do think that the U.S. is good about giving people accountability for the advice they give. I also think there's something to this system that we had in Asia, where if you don't bring in an order, you know, you're not getting paid. And we're going to know who's who and who's going to be bringing in those orders. So that these banks, they had an incentive to spend time with people like yourself and make sure that you had everything you needed, as opposed to just sending you a term sheet and putting in a call from the syndicate desk every once in a while, say what you think. Now, on the ESG side, we had an episode with uh, Marie Fryer where we talked about the lack of ESG disclosure. But I'm wondering if ESG investment, and particularly the investment into pure play ESG companies, has also been a way for active management to show its strengths again. You need a human analysis to understand which companies are actually benefiting, which companies have a good growth area in front of them. Do you think this is also kind of a way to re-engage with active investors in the IPOs and capital raises? Very much so, but I think we're nowhere near the stage we should be. I wrote a column with a friend a couple of weeks ago in the EFT about ESG and about the dispersion of ESG ratings and how they work. And it's all a little bit of a mess. Quite clear now the regulators are going to be trying to put in place some sort of common criteria around ESG because right now you've got different groups coming up with different ideas about what is E, what is S, and what is G. And it's really all over the place. And I don't think it serves the public interest and I don't think it serves investor interest. I mean, what are you actually trying to measure when you're looking at ESG? But ESG is something that I think is an area where LPs and end investors are going to be increasingly focused. They want to understand ESG-related risks of their investments, and there needs to be a much more systematic approach. And that can only be done, in my opinion, with active fund management. You can have ESG indices, but those are probably going to end up lacking the texture and the detail that's necessary. Now, as far as the banks go, the banks are, you know, they do increasing amounts of work on the DCM side. They are measuring the ESG impacts doing sustainability bonds and so forth. But there really hasn't been very much innovation on the ECM side, unless you want to talk about ESG, you know, sustainable convertible bonds. But that's basically a variation of a sustainable bond. I think there's a lot more innovation that can be done. I think the market is open to it. It's sort of who's the first one to dive in? Are there going to be dedicated ESG equity investors, or at least not the sorts of size that you're talking about, 
But most investors, they do now have a kind of ESG filter. So I think it would be interesting to see ideas around that space. And ECM teams would be ideally positioned to bring that forward. And I think in terms of impact that you have on companies, when you're actually providing capital to them for CapEx that then goes into uh, sustainable uses, that's actually one of the most impactful things you can do as a fund manager, right? Absolutely. So it doesn't look like it's the term's greenwashing, right? You need to avoid sort of slapping an ESG label, and even though money's fungible and just end up doing the same old thing, just calling it ESG. But there's so much public support for investment in sustainability, in climate tech. And you would think that this would be a real opportunity for equity capital markets themes. And, but that means you have to reorient what you're doing. And that's always a little bit difficult because that means giving up some of the stuff you've been doing in the past. Are there dedicated ESG or sustainability teams in European equity capital markets teams? Not that I'm aware of. You know, I retired a year ago, so maybe things have changed, but not that I'm aware of, and I'm not exactly seeing it in the new issue pipeline. Could be something going forward because the pipeline is quite large, right? When you look at the current private companies, is there any company you would have wanted to take public? I would actually answer the question in a different way. If you want to have Europe coming back with interesting companies and differentiated companies, but there are a tremendous number of companies right now, growth companies in Europe that are capital starved and that they're looking for a way to go public. The problem is that their last rounds were too high and IPOing on a down round is untenable because they might have to reimburse early investors. It might create issues with their employees who have shares. Down rounds can be very disruptive. And so I think that there is probably going to be some scope for, you know, additional private capital into companies, but maybe not in some sort of non-dilutive structured way. I think that's really what's going to be until these valuations on the equity side, on the public equity side, can catch up to where the last rounds were done. So you think it's the public equity market that needs to adjust upwards rather than the private valuations coming down? before you see, see it go? Well, both. But the private valuations coming down, it's just going to be very painful. That is going to happen. But that's a matter of time. I think you know as well as I do that because it means write-downs and it means potentially redemptions, recriminations, you're losing your job. You know, So write-downs in the private space just take longer to materialize, but they're going to have to meet. And this gap between public and private is really quite apparent. One of the things that I find interesting, you know, all these stocks that are now winding up, including Europe's largest SPAC, they're winding up. And really what that's about, in part, is this gap between public and private. There are companies that want to sell and want to list and want to merge with the SPAC, but the valuation that would make it sustainable is something that is untenable for them. And that probably tells you why the IPO market isn't working. By the way, the IPO market isn't working all that well in the US. It isn't working all that well in Asia, except for onshore China, which is completely separate. You have this gap between public and private. Something will probably have to give a little bit on both sides, but especially on the private side. The shoe still probably needs to drop. Craig, as a last question, is there any developments you would uh, really like to see over the next five years in the ECM market? What would those be? The ECM market should try to move into the digital era. Right now, it's an analog business in a digital world. You know, the way IPOs are executed, very similar to the way they were executed when I first started in investment banking in January 1997. There has been a lack of innovation. 
And it's still very much a kind of labor-intensive process. I would like to see more use of digital technology so that it can be done more efficiently, more quickly, and for there to be more flexibility so that deals can be done on bases that will work for all parties, that will encourage liquidity, that will make you money, that will generate excitement. And I think that will be in everyone's interest, both interests of companies and for investors. Right now, we've turned what should be a positive-sum game into a zero-sum and even negative-sum game. And I think if there aren't material changes in the way in which deals are done, we might run out a few ideas. Uh, I think in five years' time, European equity capital markets will be a backward. Thank you very much for your thoughts, Greg. Very interesting. Okay, thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we'll host CEOs, CFOs, investors, and advisors who have been involved in the IPO process, like Craig today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. Throughout the series, we'd like to address some of the important questions from management and investors. If there's any questions you have on your mind, which you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com.